If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Sahara is known as one of the world's hottest and driest environments. But during his explorations of the desert over the past 60 years, Martin Williams has discovered evidence of a green and pleasant history, one in which the area was home to lakes, rivers, humans and hippos. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Martin discusses his book When the Sahara Was Green and tells the story of the desert's verdant past. So, Martin, your book When the Sahara Was Green is a product of decades of research into the Sahara and numerous visits to the area, stretching back, I believe, uh, to the early 1960s. So my first question is, what originally fired your interest in in the world's largest hot desert? When I was a little boy, about nine years old, we were living in France, and I came across a wonderful illustrated popular article by a very distinguished French geographer who'd worked all his life in the Sahara. And it was on the dead valleys or the fossil valleys of the Sahara. And as I read it, I said to myself, I want to go and see those for myself. And the years passed, and for my honours work, I was working in southwestern Ireland. I was never dry. It rained constantly. I was mapping glacial deposits. And after I graduated, I was out caving in Derbyshire, and I received uh, a phone call, which came to my mother, in fact, in Sheffield. And it was from one of my old lecturers 
at the university who said, would I like to join a British army expedition to the southern Libyan desert in the middle of summer? And I said, yes, of course. And then I said, well, what do I have to do? And Dick Grove, my lecturer, said, oh, everything. So I duly um, joined the expedition led by a young Royal Engineers captain, now uh, later Lieutenant Colonel, David Hall. And that was the summer of 1962. We used the old Bagnold Sun Compass for navigation, which they used in the Second World War with the Long Range Desert Group. And it was like being on the moon. It was a landscape totally devoid of vegetation. It was rocks, dust, sand, <laughs> sand, dust, rocks. And yet, all along the journey, down to a mountain called Jebel Akanu, not far from the border of Sudan, e Egypt, and um, Libya, there were abundant evidence of a former human presence. In fact, of many former human presences. There were fish bones, there were ostrich eggshell bees, there were stone tools of different ages, there was wonderful rock engravings and rock paintings showing elephants, giraffes, rhinos, hippos, and there were the fossil bones of the animals. So I was 21 at the time, and the first question in my mind was, why was it once green? And the second question, well, why isn't it green today? What, what's happened? And then I thought, well, could humans have caused it? And I've been asking those questions for more than half a century, on and off, and I've traveled to most parts of the Sahara since then. Um, by camel, by four-wheel drive, and so on, on foot. And we've come across we've some pretty good answers. And, of course, a related question was, when was it green? And has it been green on many occasions? Now, Martin, I, and I'm sure like many other people, have this image in my head of the Sahara being an endless procession of sand dunes. But... As you point out in the book, desert dunes and sand plains account for just one-fifth of the Sahara. I mean, with that in mind, can you, can you give us a brief insight into the, the Saharan landscape? How varied is it? Oh, enormously varied on a big scale. You have huge mountains, great plateaus, stony plateaus, former lake basins, and you have um, former river valleys, which are now infilled and partly covered in, in dunes. Um, you have great volcanoes rising up to 3,000 meters or so, like the Hogar Mountains, the Tabesti Mountains, Jebel Mara. Um, and it's on a grand scale. And it's also one, one of the things that strikes you when you first travel through the Sahara, is huge areas are very flat. Now, why are they so flat? Well, there are a couple of very good reasons. First, 
the Sahara has been tectonically stable for thousands of millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. Most of the Sahara has suffered prolonged erosion, occasional incursions of the sea. So you've got marine deposits laid down. And in the depressions, these have become progressively filled with uh, sediment. So um, three reasons why the Sahara is, is pretty flat over most of the landscape. Prolonged erosion, the mountains wearing down and depositing sediments in the depressions, in the valleys, and occasional incursions of the sea, the last of which was a couple of hundred million years ago. So, as you argue in the book, periodically over the last hundreds of thousands of years, the Sahara has turned green, had a lot of rainfall, it's been a lot wetter than it, than it is at the moment. Why is that? Okay, well, first, when we talk about being green... What we're really talking about is a savanna landscape like East Africa today, trees and grasslands. And the latest of those wet phases was between about 15,000 and 5,000 years ago, after which it became progressively drier. There are three key reasons for these climatic fluctuations. First is that the path of the Earth around the sun is not a circle. It's elliptical. In other words, periodically the Earth is further from the sun and on occasion closer. And that cycle is roughly 100,000 years. Secondly, the tilt of the Earth's axis has varied through time. Now, if there was no tilt, if we were on a vertical axis, we wouldn't have any seasons. But the tilt itself has varied slightly, and that is roughly 40,000 years cyclicity. And then, if you've ever played, I'm sure you have, with a spinning top, you notice that the top of the top, the spindle, wiggles. And the Earth is the same. There's a wiggle. And that's about a 20,000-year cycle. Now, that's pretty important because it controls the time of year when the Earth is actually closest to the Sun. And so we've got these three cycles, which are astronomical cycles. So when did it first become apparent that the Sahara was green and that there'd been so quite widespread human settlement there between 15,000 and 5,000 years ago. We were becoming aware from the remains of Neolithic remains and from the paintings of cattle in places like Jebel Uenat on the border of Libya, Sudan, Egypt, that um, people must have been grazing cattle. But we hadn't actually found the cattle. Later, um, French and Italian archaeologists found fragments of cattle. And then in 1970, where we spent three months at a remote mountain called Adrabus in the heart of the Tenere Desert, east of the Aya Mountains, which is at the geographical pole of the heart of the Sahara. Um, the very first 
morning there, Professor Desmond Clark, a very distinguished British archaeologist based at the University of California, Berkeley. And I went for a walk as the sun was rising. And we saw a tiny bit of what we thought was white bone protruding from very dark clay. It turned out to be part of a horn core, which is the inner portion of the core. And 14 days with dental picks exhuming this creature, it turned out to be a complete Neolithic domestic cow, 5,000 years old. And that, to this day, is the only complete domestic cow. And the people who were herding the cattle at that time arrived about 7,500 years ago when there was a lake, a whole series of lakes across the Sahara. And they were there for a couple of thousand years until things became too dry, the water table fell, the lakes dried up, and they migrated south. Some of them moved up into the mountains, like the Hogar, the Tibesti. Their descendants are still there today, but most of them migrated. The ones who stayed were very adaptable, very clever. They understood the ecosystems. They knew where to find water. They knew where to find grazing. And they adapted to this extraordinarily harsh environment with enormous success. And I have the highest admiration for desert pastoral nomads or semi-nomads. They know what they're doing. Am I right in saying that you also find the rib cage of a long dead hippopotamus when you're in the Sahara? Yes. At this particular place, we'd been there for three months. We'd done a lot of digging, a lot of excavating. And on the very last morning, Desmond Clark and I went for a nostalgic walk around the shoreline of one of the lakes that had been in existence there, which dried out about nine and a half, nine thousand years ago. And it had been pretty windy the night before, and the soft sediments of the lake had been partially eroded, and we spotted a ribcage, and out came the brush, and it was the ribcage of a hippopotamus. And what was even better was that embedded in the ribcage was a barbed bone harpoon point, about 9,000 years old. People were actually harpooning hippos in the lake and feasting off them. And it's still there. We didn't excavate it. We covered it over. We looked at each other. We said, this one stays. So what do we know about these people who lived in the Sahara at this time? Can you kind of paint a picture of what their settlements were like? And do we know much about them culturally and the way that they saw the world around them? Oh, yes. Um, There's a site about 300 kilometres south of Adrabus called Gobiro, where a major excavation took place. And something like 200 burials spanning... um, nine and a half thousand years onwards were excavated. The older group of people were tall, pretty robust, strongly built, 
And they were hunters, they were gatherers, they were fishers. They, they did not domesticate. And looking at the strontium isotopes in the teeth, which tell you what they were eating, and also what the local geology was, um, we can infer that, or, or the archaeologists who worked on this particular site can infer, they didn't move very much. They were fairly sedentary. They made a very good living from hunting, from fishing and gathering. Then the lake dried out, and it was dry for about at least a 1,000 years, probably about 2,000. And then it filled up again, not quite as high as before, again, very much like at Adrabus, and a new group of people came in. And these people were short or shorter, quite gracile, quite slender people, rather similar to some of the desert nomads in the Red Sea Hills today, the Hadendoa people, who were very slightly built. And they brought cattle with them. And they moved from the Nile Valley, and they brought cattle at about 7,400 years ago. And they remained there until just after 5,000, about 4,500, when desiccation set in pretty, pretty severely. And they migrated southwards, back to the Nile Valley. Um, a few of them stayed, but they moved up into the mountains. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So I just speculate that it's quite likely that the people who depicted these giraffes five or six thousand years ago or more, it could be that for them, the giraffes represented abundance, plenty, enough to eat, and had some spiritual significance. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, cave art as well you you discovered while you were there? Oh, yes. Uh, the, the cave art is really of two sorts. Uh, the engravings, um, the older engravings show elephants, giraffes, various forms of um, 
antelopes, rhinos, very few human figures. And they're related to the hunter-gatherer people. The more recent um, rock art, at WANET, for example, there are a thousand galleries of individual galleries of beautiful rock art. And they show hunting scenes with people with bows and arrows and dogs. They show camps. They show women and babies, men herding cattle with dogs. And way up in the Tassili Mountains, a couple of thousand kilometers up to the northwest in southern Algeria, there are some remarkable paintings that show women riding oxen, wearing what looks like their finery, sometimes with little tents above them and carrying babies. And that is about 5,000 years old. And what I found most interesting is that today, in Western Sudan, the Bagara uh, tribe, who are a cattle-owning tribe of people, Bagara in Arabic means cow, follow the rains and the pasture and migrate north when the rainy season resumes. And the women ride the oxen, wearing their finery and with their babies. So just they did 5,000 or so years ago? There's a tradition that goes back 5,000 years, which I find, um, I find that wonderful. Also in the book, you describe the discovery of Neolithic depictions of uh, giraffes, and you suggest that these may have some kind of religious or spiritual significance. Why do you think that? Well, two, two reasons primarily. One is that um, the giraffes in question are depicted in a very narrow valley high up in Jebel Arkanu, where we spent quite some time in 1962. And it would be very difficult for giraffes to go um, go up the mountain, which is pretty steep and narrow gorges, and there wouldn't be much to, for them to eat. So they were probably grazing out on the plain. So the artists were depicting animals that were important to them and which they had observed very minutely out on the plains around the mountain. The sand people of the Kalahari to this day um, depict giraffes, not because they're giraffes, but because they have spiritual significance for the people. And so I just speculate that it's quite likely that the people who depicted these giraffes five or 6,000 years ago or more, it could be that for them, the giraffes represented abundance, plenty, enough to eat, and had some spiritual significance. But that's a speculation. So... We think that roughly 5,000 years ago, the Sahara, the lakes and the rivers began to dry up. The Sahara gradually became a lot more arid again. 
Do we know why that happened? Was it human activity that contributed to it, or do you think it was a natural phenomenon? I've been asking myself that question for more than 50 years, um, and I'm pretty convinced now that the prime reason it dried out was there was less solar radiation in the tropics. We know that for a fact, in fact, for, from the position of the Earth and the sun. So if you had about 8 or 9% less solar radiation in the latitude of the southern Sahara, you would have had a much weaker monsoon, a shorter wet season. The summer rains would have been much briefer, would not have extended as far north as they did. And we do know that when the Sahara itself was green, between 15 and um, about 5,000 years ago, there was of the order of 10% more solar radiation in the tropics and a stronger monsoon, for which we have abundant evidence, not just in North Africa, but also in China, in India, in other parts of the world. So um, we'll, to the question, did humans cause it? I think in one or two places, as desiccation set in, overgrazing may have caused a slight increase in soil erosion in some localities. Um, the most convincing to me is the Afar Desert of Ethiopia, where you've got a series of gullies today. And when you look at the older sediments, you don't see evidence of ancient gullies, former gullies. And cattle domestication began there about 4,000 years ago. At Adrabus itself, I recorded an increase in the rate of sedimentation in the little mountain valleys, indicating an increase in erosion round about the time people were living there. Um, that could be linked to both humans having an impact as well as the climate becoming drier. But elsewhere, no evidence that is I found in any way convincing that humans caused the Sahara to come into being. Now, Martin, you've obviously obviously been studying the Sahara for a very long time. I mean, during that period, to what extent have technological advances assisted you in your quest to paint a picture of what life was like in the Sahara thousands of years ago? And also, what more have we got to learn about this period? Is there a lot more we don't know, do you think? I would say there's more to learn than we've ever learned so far, um, as, as is always the case in any science. Um, new questions come up, you know, that, for example, the domestication of cattle. Were the people domesticating wild cattle, which were the aurochs cattle which roamed the Sahara, were they in fact bringing in cattle from the Near East, or was it a mix of both? And those those questions are still open. What um, breakthroughs scientifically? Well, I never throw away samples. I always keep samples. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples. The technique of dating sand dunes 
only really came to being in the last uh, couple of decades. In other words, after our initial work in Libya in the 60s, after our work in the Tenere Desert in the 70s. And essentially what luminescent stating does is tells you the last time that a little grain of sand, a quartz grain, was exposed to sunlight and then buried. And that's a very clever technique. It takes you back uh, two or three hundred thousand years. And in very good conditions, you can go back a million years. Another example, um, which I'll illustrate from the Nile Valley, if I may, one of the big questions was, when did flow resume in the Nile after the Ugandan lakes had been dry and from about four and fourteen and a half thousand years ago, the shells that we collected, the fossil shells from the White Nile and the Blue Nile, contain an isotope called strontium. And if you analyze the strontium 87-86 ratio, you can actually say the type of water in which the shell was living. And we can then document using that when water from Uganda flowed back into the White Nile. And the same is true of the Saharan lakes and of what people were eating, for example. The whole series of isotopes that are available, um, techniques of pollen analysis have improved enormously. Radiocarbon dating has improved. We now can use tiny quantities to date rather than the big chunks that we used to use in the old days. So the techniques are constantly improving, and they allow us to refine the types of questions we're interested in asking, and even to think of new questions that we'd never thought of asking. Now, what can the Sahara teach us about how people have and can adapt to periods of drought and extreme weather events. I mean, I'm asking you this in light of obviously the of climate change and the impact that's having on settlements around the globe. Three things are essential for life. Water, air, plants. And plants are important because they are the only source of a net increase in biomass on this planet through photosynthesis and trapping sunlight. If you destroy the plants, you effectively are destroying a resource that's quite hard to renew in the short run. The same goes for water. We know that there's a lot of water in the Sahara, close to the surface and deeper down. We also know that the last time it was effectively replenished was about 125,000 years ago, uh, and a little bit between about 15 and 5,000 years ago. So mining the water in the Sahara is mining a non-renewable resource. And big attempts in Libya and Egypt to bring up this water failed after a couple of years because the five meters of evaporation, a little bit of salt in the water, gradually concentrates, the soils become salty, they can't grow. So the lesson from looking at people living in the Sahara today is 
They are very adaptable. They are mobile when they need to be. They have a very acute and intelligent knowledge of the plants, the animals, where to find water. And over the years, they've learned very successfully to adapt to the extremes of this environment. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. The fact that humans can adapt to extreme environments and make a good living and not want to change is, I think, very encouraging, given the fact that the current debate of global warming um, and people can become very depressed if it's bad news all the time. And the other thing, um, of course, the other lesson from the Sahara in general is that we, we should not blame ourselves for having caused the Sahara. Um, it's there for very good reasons, nothing to do with humans. We've done enough damage in other ways. We don't need to blame ourselves for things we haven't done. And, for example, if you observe the behavior of jackals, they will dig for water. And that can actually guide you to where to find water. And we did that in, at Adrabus in 1970. And the water from that particular source kept a dozen of us alive with no ill effects for three months in the heart of the Sahara thanks to the jackals for finding it for us in the first place. Okay, Morrison, so your epilogue of the book is called Will's the Sahara Become Green Once More? Have you reached a conclusion to that question? Have you, have you been able to answer that question? It will indeed, but not for a very long time. It won't depend upon humans. It will depend upon the next time that the tropics receive more solar radiation and the monsoons become stronger. And that's a few thousand years down the track. Finally, do you have any plans to return to the Sahara yourself in, in the future? And, and if so, what, what is it that, that, that is pulling you back to the area? What is it you like most about working in this area? I would love to go back, although whether that'll be possible, I don't know. We live in uncertain times. One of the regions that fascinate me is um, the whole Eastern Sahara, and particularly uh, Northern Sudan, where I've worked with a team of Swiss archaeologists, and we dated the occupation in this region, and we found various gaps when people simply apparently we're not there. We, we have over 100 radiocarbon ages of occupation and a couple of key times when, you know, they just moved. And those gaps are telling us more about climatic variability and we can match them with the flow record of the Nile, which I've been studying for 50 years as well, and with the offshore record in the Eastern Mediterranean. So, I think what I'd like to do is to be able to compare and contrast in some detail the last 15, 20,000 years of climatic history 
or environmental history in the Sahara, the Nile Valley, the Ethiopian highlands, and the Eastern Mediterranean, and put it all together. And do, do you miss the landscape over there? I mean, it's obviously very different to anywhere else on, on Earth. I mean, is that something you'd like to experience again? Oh, yes. I've never slept better in my life than sleeping on the ground in, in the Sahara, <laughs> despite the scorpions and the saw-scale vipers and all, all those little beasties. Never worried me. <laughs> it's the, the peace, the quiet, the absence of background noise, looking at the stars without any interference from other light, um, living a very... Um, Simple life, but a very satisfying life. No air pollution, no water pollution, no noise pollution. I mean, I'm probably thoroughly antisocial, but I've always felt at home in those parts. And I've always always enjoyed the company of the local people, telling stories, cracking jokes, listening to their legends. I, I could do that till the sun goes down. That was Martin Williams. His book, When the Sahara Was Green, How Our Greatest Desert Came to Be, is published by Princeton University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 